right, in this episode of Investors and Operators, I sit down with David Perez, co-founder of Avance Investment Management, and we're gonna begin with a flash round of questions. First question is, what is your favorite meal at Victor's Cafe? Oh, hands down, ropa vieja, black beans, fries, tostones, and uh, maybe a mojito or two, uh, slice in between there. A mojito or two? Yes. Okay. Question number two, uh, are you wearing a special shirt? Uh, not today, but I have been known to wear a special shirt once in a while, particularly in, when I'm asking for money, yes. Can you please elaborate just a little on that topic? Well, Jordan, you know that fundraising is, is tough and people who fundraise tend to be superstitious, at least I am. And uh, sometimes when things go well, you tend to repeat what you did in that specific day, that specific moment. So uh, it was, there was a time during the uh, fundraise of Avance where things were slow during the pandemic summer and uh, then Labor Day came and I started wearing a blue shirt, not very different from this one. And I started realizing that uh, all the meetings were going really well. So I, I thought about it, what am I doing different? And I go, darn, the, the shirt. So I started wearing that shirt again and again and again. And we started getting some traction. So I kept wearing that darn shirt again and again, all the way to our first closing in March of the next year. I'm embarrassed to say how many times I wore it. How many times have you washed it? Well, that's uh... a... <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I was not allowed to wash this shirt. <laughs> it's still hanging in my closet, and uh, we're thinking about framing it. <laughs> Hermetically sealed, so nothing get in and out of it? <laughs> yes, I've, I've been not allowed to wear it for a while, but it's been, it's, uh, it's been uh, saved for uh, posterity. All right. I think we have done an effective warm-up. The last question, actually, for the warm-up. When you think back to, to, to growing up, and if there is a particular like dish or smell of like the house, like what brings you back? So I grew up about 100 yards from the sea. So for me, like every time I'm close to the sea and I smell salt water and, and that sort of humid weather with the heavy, that smell of the sea, that, that's home to me. So it, it's that, that smell of, of growing up very close to the water. And, and, you know, in fact, recently I've been uh, spending more time closer to the water and, and it's brought me back some memories of being home. That's a strong smell that you remember. It's interesting, time. like my, I remember at you know, 6.30 in the morning, my dad would make coffee and just the smell of the coffee go down the stairs into the shower. Right. And as I was getting ready as a kid growing up, middle school and high school, was that smell. It's like, so every time I smell coffee, like I think of my dad. Right. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of growing up, I mean, let's, let's get the story. I, I have heard it for a number of months, and I just think it is truly one of the most fascinating stories that I think we might have ever had on this, on this vlog, and that's 70 episodes. So not to say that the bar is high, but the bar is high. Uh, let's get it out there. What's up? Let's, let's take it back. Where did you grow up, and just what was it, what was it like? Well, 70 episodes. I'll, I'll do my best. How about that? So, um, so I grew up. Uh, in Cuba. Uh, I was born in the late 60s, 68 to be precise. And, um, you know, Cuba was, you know, as you know, an island that at that point was in the middle of 
sort of under the socialist Russian influence. So uh, I grew up there. I went to uh, elementary school near home. Um, and then I went to uh, parts of middle school also near home. Uh, and then I went to boarding school <clears throat> when I turned uh, about 11. Um, I mean, growing up, I have amazing memories. Um, Cuba was, um, you know, pretty integrated society, so a lot of friends. I grew up with friends in the block, you know, kind of back, what you hear here about stories in the 50s and whatnot. Used to come after school and play with the kids in the block, and those were your friends, and it didn't matter whether your parents are more or less, you sort of grew up in that environment, uh, went, in, you know, went into each other's homes to eat and went out with each other. and, and uh, So in, in that sense, um, I had an, a very... Um, you know, I have a very good memories from my upbringing. Our block is still pretty tight, stays in touch. We, we just essentially grew up in each other's homes, in and out. Um, after school, <clears throat> I, um, as I mentioned, I, I went to boarding school. So I went away from home when I was 11. And uh, I was a bit of a late bloomer, so I was really young for my age set and for my cohorts. My parents did the opposite of what's recommended today. and. Uh, that pushed me forward a year from kindergarten to first grade. Um, so not only was I young because I was a June birthday, I was pushed forward a year. So developmentally, I was close to two years behind right. my uh, age set. So I, as a boy and in your, in your teen years, that means they beat the crap out of you because you're the can and, uh, and you have to learn how to fend for yourself. And, uh, and I did. And, um, and I think so. I. Spent three years in boarding school uh, in the outskirts of Havana. Um, it was a tough school to get into, so it was, it was called uh, Vladimir Ilyich Landing School. You had to apply, and based on your grades, your GPA, they, they let you in. Um, I was kicked out of that school eventually in ninth grade because I'm a, I'm a big baseball fan, and I would I would escape after after school and take three buses to go into Havana and watch baseball, um, and then I would take three buses and go back. And then one of those rides home at around 1 a.m., a bus broke. We had to walk along the side of the street, and some policemen picked us up. And Anyway, it threw me out of the school in the middle of ninth grade, which meant I went back to Havana and finished, um, finished middle school and then high school uh, near home, uh, which was another great, great experience um, for me. Um, what did your parents do? So my, uh, my, uh, my parents were um, uh, essentially, I wouldn't call them intellectuals, but uh, certainly um, my mom was an animal scientist, uh, worked uh, in development, the whole animal scientist side of Cuba for many years. Uh, and my dad um, was a lawyer who turned into an economist. He had, my dad had fought against the uh, regime that was there before the the, the Castro era, which is called the revolution. Um, and he had fought with a group of students at the University of Havana. And um, he was part of the top few folks there. Uh, and after uh, Castro came in power, he essentially was, was brought into, they created a unified government. And eventually my dad became, uh, in the late 60s, part of that government. Uh, my dad was the, in fact, the head of the central bank there for from the late 60s, from 67 to the 73 uh, or so. And then after that, he fell in disgrace with, 
with uh, some, as Cuba turned very, uh, very communist in the mid-70s, uh, I started copying the Soviet system with the, with the five-year plan and the Politburo and the Communist Party, by the way. Uh, my dad fell in disgrace, and then he was a bureaucrat, essentially, mostly as a CFO, uh, using his economics training and background. And mom was an animal scientist, so two very different professions, but uh, both of them were what I would call PhD-level type uh, uh, education. So I grew up with the, you know, with having very educated parents and with the notion that I was going to improve myself by learning and by... Um, you know, trying to be the best at, at that. And I would, uh, those were two very strong influences in my life. How did um, how'd your parents meet? That was a, uh, a very uh, interesting story. So my, my mom, by the way, uh, she's still the, the longest living American in Cuba. So she's been living in Cuba since January 1959. Um, and they met in the summer of 1955 Mom was a sophomore at Cornell University in the Ag School. She had grown up in a, in a farm in Cooperstown, which is about two hours from Cornell, and uh, had gone to um, the, the Ag School there. And then over the summer, she had planted some uh, cucumbers one year and made like $300 selling those cucumbers. And uh, she had an aunt who was in Paris at the time working, and Molly. And uh, so she took a semester off from Cornell, and with those $300 and another loan she got from her dad, I think a couple hundred bucks, bought a, a ticket at the, in the steamer and, uh, and went over to Paris, studied at the Sorbonne um, for a semester. My dad was in a similar journey. He was... Wait, how long did it take to go on a steamer to, <laughs> to Europe? I don't know. I would, I would say several weeks. Um, but this is, this is how you, how you travel crazy. back then. Crazy, no? Um, so my dad was in a similar uh, part of his life. He had graduated as a lawyer in, from the University of Havana. Um, so dad was born in 32. So probably you know, 20 years later, early 50s. Then he had worked as a lawyer, and I got involved in, in a movement to overthrow the prior regime. The secret police was after him, and essentially my grandfather took him out of Cuba and sent him to Europe for fear of his life. He studied um, a semester at London School of Economics and then the second semester at, um, at the Sorbonne. And met my mom at the, in a break, I think my mom... Uh, I, I'm not, I don't know I'm allowed to say that anymore, but pull out a cigarette in the courtyard and my dad came with a lighter and uh, lit that cigarette and here I am, you know. <laughs> Eventful. There we go. I've seen that in a couple movies. Um, so, so they met in 55? 55. 55. Um, yeah, met in 55. Then stayed in touch. Dad went back to Cuba and... My mom went back to Cornell uh, to finish her, her degree and then started a PhD program in uh, um, uh, insects and some other, you know, uh, animal scientists kind of things. And, uh, and dad worked as a lawyer. And then, frankly, um, in his efforts to try to um, overthrow the government, his main job was to um, raise money in the U.S. and smuggle arms to send them down to Cuba. So he would go back and forth. Um, doing that, and um, and I think that got him into trouble again, 
and by the late late 50s now in 58 he there were the secret police came close to him and his friends they escaped him by very little and they jumped the fence over the embassy of Venezuela and and sought asylum and uh, and then they were transported to Venezuela and got out of Cuba so that spent most of 1958 in Miami doing the same thing raising money and helping send money down to Cuba to see how much trouble they could create and my mom then um, had finished Cornell moved down there and uh, spent 1958 she told me in a in an apartment full of Cubans who couldn't work because they didn't have work papers so my mom was the only one who could work she was working during the day you know at, at a department store and at night she was cooking for five Cubans who again were were just trying to uh, raise money and, and overthrow their government so that that was a uh, then uh, the uh, Castro was was um, won and in, in, uh, or the prior government was overthrown at the end of 1958 my mom and my dad were on the first plane one of the first planes January 8th 1959 and that's uh, she's been in Cuba ever since well, we can just like, keep on diving into that but uh, so how after after boarding school like what was what was next and you studied in, I know you studied in East Germany, but was that, what was that during like? Yeah, so after high school, I got a scholarship to study in East Germany. Um, I had to take um, German, I had to learn German, which I did in Havana. Um, I had to retake high school in a year. I took, um, I studied uh, engineering, so I took chemistry, physics, math, and, um, and just language. So I did that intensively for a year, and that prepared me to go to East Germany where I got in the summer of 1986. and um, So you had to learn German, German yeah. to go take college classes. Yeah, of course, they, they were only offered in German. So uh, the first day I showed up, I had to understand the professor and you know, be able to and write this down. this was not entry level German. <laughs> no, this was university. <laughs> Um, so, you know, that had, its, that had its own, and listen, I, I lived my life fully in German for four years after that, to the point that when I arrived here in the summer of 1990, I had a thick German accent, you know, so people thought I was German. That natural blend of Cuban-German. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. So uh, I, uh, it, was, uh, it was quite funny, think, people thinking I was German, but indeed I, I had spoken I'd spent four years from 1986 to 1990 speaking only German, um, you know, every day. So that, that sort of shaped my... Uh, but I but, uh, had a great time. It was a very eventful time. Um, you know, right what happened, right, right almost after I arrived, um, you know, Gorbachev comes into power and he unleashes this perestroika movement, which is really an openness. You know, the whole notion was that we were going to open up society and let information flow in in a way that had never been allowed to fly in. And that created essentially the whole social movement, which uh, um, ultimately resulted in an overthrow of all those regimes. Because people started questioning the history, the reality, what was driving progress, whether the system worked, whether it didn't work. And uh, I was much easier for uh, a dictatorship to control something when it's closed and they control the information when it's open, which is what happened a bit uh, with perestroika, then this movement of glasnost, which is another word of opening that came in and um, 
and you know uh, all the other countries uh, started opening up. So in, in the summer of 1989, fast forward three years when I'm there, uh, one after the other, all those countries start um, basically re rejecting their, their governments. Uh, and that resulted with the fall of East Germany and the reunification in uh, October 1989, which in a strange way is, is what allowed me to come here. Um, the country reunified and um, I was able to you know, reclaim my uh, U.S. citizenship, which I had obtained through my mom's um, when I was born. And uh, I went to the U.S. consulate in East Berlin and um, got a passport and made it. In the summer of 1990, August 10th, I flew from uh, the old Tempelhof um, airfield to Miami and um, started my life here. Can you dive a little bit back into what it was like in just like in, when, you know, the, at that time when the Berlin Wall was falling and just, were you, were you there by yourself or were you there with like a, a you know, class of others that were coming from Havana? Um, were you just like, hey, get on an airplane, you're in East Germany, you're, you're, you're solo. Or like, what was it like towards the end? And like, who else were you with in terms of yeah, there were, like 20 other students? Yeah, there were about 300 Cubans, I think, in total studying in, Ger in East Germany and probably about 25, 30 in Dresden. Um, none in what the sector that I was studying. Uh, I was studying process engineering, and for some reason I was the only Cuban uh, that was studying that. There were two other women that were studying textile engineering, which is a related field. Um, but, you know, as you, uh, university there is very intense. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing I, a little vignette that I learned when I got to the U.S. and I, I started at Cornell and, I, and they sent me to the register, they, um, they said, well, you have to take this many courses and this many electives. And I remember saying, what, what the hell is an elective? It's like, elective is you get to choose the course. It's like, but I never had to do that. So in East Germany, they gave you 12 subjects, you know, and were this, you didn't get to elect anything. So the university life is very intense uh, and designed to be a lot of work. So you don't see a lot of people, you're just focused on your, on your academics. Um, but listen, my life was, was, um, was great. It was, as I mentioned to you, very integrated with my East German colleagues. Um, and, uh, and, it, and, and, and I think part of uh, this, this is partly how I became more acquainted with what was going on with Glasson and Perestroika because many of them were questioning themselves. You know, I went to their homes. They were very generous with me, invited me to their homes for the weekends, the holidays, whatever. So I get to spend time with priests, with others. Um, you know, people who in Cuba you n never had exposure to. Uh, in Cuba, if you were seen entering church back in the day, you'd be, be thrown out of high school. So I, um, the, you know, the, the role that the uh, religious establishment played in that transition was a very strong one. And um, so I, I had, my, my life was integrated with my East German friends. I worked at nights and on weekends to make some money which had a lot of benefits I'll get to in, in a second. Um, and, uh, but I have a great life. I mean, I go back, people, when I arrived in the U.S., people say, East Germany, ah, that must have been horrible. I go like, East Germany was great. And they look at me like, what? It's like, yeah. 
It's the first time that I can go to a store and buy a beer, buy a sausage, buy whatever the heck you want with money. And granted, it was not the greatest, but I could go and buy it. I grew up with a ration card in Cuba. There was no, none of that. You went to the store and it, you got this much rice a month and that was it. There was no free selection of what you could buy. And um, whereas East Germany has still at least had food on the shelves. And, uh, and that for me was, was uh, you know, a great improvement. Um, you know, had all the things that are different from Cuba. Didn't add a lot of sun. People are, you know, to some extent less happy or less prone to happiness. But, um, but I had a lot of things that I, that I liked as well. Can you talk about the, if you're, if you're comfortable just kind of sharing it, just like the, I don't know if it was like a night, a week, when it was kind of towards that last months before you left. And just, I remember you saying something about, um, you know, when you were leaving and just it was a little bit rushed. I, th I think you're referring to, so when, when, um, when East Germany uh, unified with West Germany and cut many of the of these countries that I send their students, many of the sort of uh, closed countries, of which Cuba was one, and, but there was another other ones, Syria and North Korea and, and some others. And I think those countries which had sent their students there, knowing that full well that they couldn't travel from there, that they had to stay there, um, all of a sudden they had open borders and they were afraid that the students would take advantage of the opportunity and flee. So what happened, um, I think, was one night the North Koreans came in and, and uh, essentially, quote, quote unquote, abducted all their students. I think at around 2 a.m. they came in with a bus and took all their students and put them on a flight and flew them to North Korea. So at the end, we were all fearful that other countries, maybe even including Cuba, would consider that. And uh, so we started you know, being a little more uh, worried about what was going on and what would happen. And it was unclear what actions would be taken. Eventually, Cuba asked all their students to come back. It wasn't comfortable with that, so that, but it was done in a more organized uh, fashion. But it was a very stressful time. No one, not just for me, by the way, um, very stressful time for that country. People who had worked their entire lives in a system uh, were asked to merge with another country where they had no you know, they had, some of them have relatives, but uh, they feel very insecure about their jobs, about what was going on. And, you know, some of that is played out now over the next few decades, but it created a lot of agita, in, including for my fellow students who didn't know whether their East German education will now be considered or acknowledged by the West German uh, companies. And at the end of the day, everything worked out pretty well, but it was, in, it was, in, uh, it was a time of, of uh, high uncertainty, a lot of change. Um, and, and that in the same for me, I mean, I didn't know what was going to go on. I, I decided, um, during that transition that I wanted to come to the U S I, uh, I wanted to pursue my life here. Um, and, uh, that's why I did, I, um, frankly didn't consult anyone or my parents or anyone. It just, uh, how'd you get here? I mean, how'd you get the money to save up and come here? Or is it like, Here's the address, parents, please. <laughs> no, my, my parents didn't have any money, so it was not that. So I, I had, I think I mentioned to you, uh, I, had, um, I had a gig uh, that I worked the night shift and the weekend shift at a, at a factory that made toilets. And uh, I worked from 10 p.m. to 
6 a.m. or something like that with a 20-minute break. And um, the factory, the, the molds came in for the toilets. And then before they would go into the oven, they would open up and me with, a, with an air gun would go in and make sure they were all smooth. There were no things that stuck and whatnot. So that was my gig. They paid me really well. I had to be all covered and whatnot. And uh, through that, I made a lot of money, East German money, which then when West Germany uh, and East Germany united, um, they exchanged about, I think it was 5,000 marks. Um, I do remember showing up here with about $3,000 that I had obtained through my savings and through the West German government, which in a way was my venture capitalist. So that's, that worked out really well. So I showed up, I bought the ticket, you know, I think my ticket was like four hundred dollars, and uh, and then I still had enough money to buy a, a beat up uh, uh, old uh, Honda Civic. Uh, so that was uh, that was my journey, and that's that's how I got here. This is, and then I was very lucky that I found an arrangement uh, up in Cornell where I didn't really pay tuition, nor did I pay room and board. So I was able to you know, live of that for close to a year. Were you, you were going to school full-time in addition to working at night? Yep. I was, uh, I was asleep in the mornings, man, and when, when I had to go to, uh, sometimes I'd just go home, change, and went to, uh, went to um, class. Uh, it was intense. I mean, I couldn't do it, I could do it on the weekends, and I couldn't do it more than a couple of nights a week. You know, this is essentially pulling an all-nighter on your feet. And, uh, you know, Germans are very disciplined. When they said 20 minute break, it was a 20 minute break, you know. Uh, if, I, if I wasn't standing there, the line would stop, so. How did, um, how did that experience shape who you are? And not just that experience, I mean, looking back to, you know, the, the night shift looking back and having to learn German in a year to go to university and, you know, growing up, uh, growing up with, you know, ration cards, kind of looking back, how do you think that that has really shaped who you are today in things that are good and things that are, oh, I didn't realize that other side of me. Yeah. I mean, very, very good question. I mean, I, I would, I would say my journey has just made me an optimist. Um, because if you, when I look back, every experience was different, and every experience was, I wouldn't say better, but better than I, better than I thought, and better in, in different ways. And Cuba had great things, East Germany had some other great things. Then I came to the U.S. and whatever jobs that, you know, I. I uh, I, I believe we're, in the, we're in, uh, on this earth for just a little while, so you have to enjoy every piece. And whatever you get dealt with, yes, it's going to have some stuff that you don't like, but focus on what you can learn, focus on what you can take to the next. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm an optimist, and I think that all those experiences have shaped me into, into being that. Uh, and it's, a great, it's been great in my professional career, but I think going um and 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 i love the journey that i've had which has been upwards you know i i had you know grew up with relatively little in in the sense of what you see today uh, as i mentioned to you we didn't have um you know everyone had the same thing you know i think i got my first 
pair of jeans when my aunt came to visit me in 1979, and then I learned how to sew so I can, you know, expand them and you know work on them and whatnot. And uh, so you have very little, you know. I I was the youngest of seven cousins or so, so I wore the hand-me-downs from seven kids. And, uh, and that was great. And by the way, after me, there were three other kids who got them. So <laughs> we were used to that. And uh, then in East Germany, we had, you know, I had other experiences. And then I came here. And you know, I think life has been great. Uh, and it's taught me to take advantage of opportunities, too. So don't take anything for granted. Uh, just focus. Try to see the good. Try to see the good in everything. Um, I would... You know, and then work hard. I mean, I'd, I've taken, you know, I don't regret a lot of things. Um, I, uh, I, I just don't like to regret. I, I like to take advantage uh, of them as they as they're happening. And um, if you can make mistakes, I've made a ton of mistakes, for sure. But I, I've been. That's those experiences made me. You know, because my life has improved along the way, and I've had, and yes, a few setbacks and a few things haven't worked. But overall, I think uh, different environments keep you on your feet. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit what's played out in my profession lately, but, it's, it's, um, but, but you need change. You need, you need a challenge. You can't get complacent. And I think the degree to which my life has changed, you know, I grew up speaking Spanish, went to college in Germany have my professional life now in English, it's, it's also been, it's forced me to, to learn and to uh, l learn how to be in, a, in an environment where you're not, you don't have 100% information, you don't have 100% uh, context. I remember what drove me crazy in this country when I arrived was that there were all these jokes and, and expressions about popular culture and, and, and shows, and none of which I had to watch. So you'd be in a conversation and they're talking about, oh, that reminds me of so-and-so from that show. And I'm like smiling, ha-ha, what the heck is that? You know, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have the context. Um, but it's, it's that. It's, uh, you know, it's the willingness to then engage in that and be comfortable without, without having to control 100% of the knowledge. What do you think your... Uh what do you think that your parents would say if they walked through this office with you? I mean, that, that would, both of them would be very proud. I think mom, my mom is, she hasn't been to the office yet, but she wants to come. Uh, we just started in April. Very proud. My dad was, you know, uh, he lived through, you know, everything that I did. And, you know, because he's, in a way, he was a frustrated, he, uh, he was a very well-prepared business person who could not fulfill his potential because of the limitations of Cuba. So he did the best he could, and he did amazing but uh, you know, I always felt that uh, if they had, if my parents had grown up, or or been able to exercise their professions in a free market environment, their their life would have been a little different. I don't know that it would have been better, to be honest. One of the things that Cuba gifted them and us and me, and in a very positive way, is we grew up with a lot of friends. Like, you know, it was an open house in a way. People would show up at 5 unannounced and at 5.15 would be the next person and by 6 we had a party. And, uh, you know, that's annoying sometimes, but it create, created that environment where I love to socialize. Uh, I love having gatherings. You know, I have a party once a year with over 100 people, at least I used to. But I grew up with that. I grew up with that sort of... And by the way, you don't have to have a lot of money. I, the parties that I threw up in high school... 
I made up my own wine out of rice and mango and whatnot. So you can make up your own stuff and still have fun. And that's what Cuba, um, but going back to my parents, they would be immensely proud of, um, you know, what I've done and, and what Avance now is now becoming and, and even some of my prior um, things that I've done and, and also my personal life, my, my wife, my kids who they got to know and spent some time with and, uh, and you know, some of the other things that I'm involved with. I think I've channeled my parents, um, you know, whatever, whatever I, I, I capture from their they were all very engaged also with, you know, helping neighbors, helping whoever they could. And I've taken a little bit of that. You, you succeed, you give back, uh, you pay it forward. What do you think, um, what does Hispanic Heritage Month mean to you? You've had this journey hmm. of three very different worlds, or two very different worlds. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, do you, do you think about it? Is it conscious or is it just like another month or is it like just kind of like this, a good reminder to pause? Like, what is it, what does it mean to you? Listen, Hispanic Heritage Month is an awesome celebration um, that this is what I find great about this country. We celebrate a lot of things. We celebrate, you know, uh, all the different, this is, this country is a punch bowl, it's a mosaic of different groups that come and shape our history and our future and our present and, and, um, and I love it when we celebrate that, and um, and they're all very rich. That's what makes this society so rich and so successful is that we're open to celebrating, to incorporating everyone. Hispanics in it of themselves are again another mosaic of different cultures. And if you think about the the population and and uh, the you know how what's making this country grow, the the census numbers just came out, at least the highlights, and they show again that Hispanics accounted for over fifty percent of the population growth. If it weren't for Hispanics, this country wouldn't be growing. We're the only uh, developed country in this world whose population is growing. So Hispanics, I would say, are important for the the economy, are important for our national security, are important for you know the future, the workers. Uh, they're the youth. You know, Hispanics are, but close to 20% of the population, but over 30% of the youth. So that, you know, how we celebrate him, how we empower them, how we make him part of this fabric uh, and, and, and make him, uh, incorporate him into every aspect of society, um, you know, wealth making, capital management, everything. Uh, education is super important. So for me, I, I feel I'm being celebrated. You know, I grew up, you know, and, and the, and the Terminology changes. I grew up a Cuban guy, then I became Hispanic, then Latino, now I'm Latinx. Whatever you want to call me, I think Hispanic captures the heritage and the vibrancy of that movement. And um, I'm excited to, that, that we're recognizing uh, Hispanics. I, I, think, I think they're, they're a hardworking group uh, with very strong values, very American. It's a very, Hispanics is a very American story in spite of recent, you know, uh, politicians saying otherwise, uh, I couldn't think of an, an, a group that, that has, uh, you know, a, a strong values. Uh, and there are many others, but Hispanics are, are amazing. So let, let's shift gears a little bit and go to, you know, the, the next part of your life, you know, the, the professional career side. And, I mean, what was the first job? Uh, so when my, you came to the U.S., sorry. All right, my first paid <laughs> job. Uh, it was... Um, I worked as a, an investment banker for a firm called uh, James C. Wolfenson. 
uh, not very far from where here, 53rd and Lex. I did M&A for three years, two years in New York, one year in London. Uh, work my butt off, you know, this is before, this is Wall Street in the early 90s, all-nighters, uh, whatever, it was a small firm. I think I was in my analyst class, it was just me, um, which I love. Uh, I learned how to model in Lotus 1, 2, 3. Oh, you were used to the all-nighters. Oh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I, I trained in East Germany for those. Uh, but, it's, it's, you know, but uh, I, I learned uh, model and, you know, back in the day. And, um, but it was great. It was a great experience for me. Um, I learned business. I learned how to communicate. And then after that, I decided to go to business school. Um, so you went to HBS, and uh, that's where you met Luis. Right. So we started, um, we started at HBS together in the fall of 1994, and there was a few Cubans in campus. Um, so I, was, I think I was the only one who had actually come from Cuba. He had uh, grown up in New Jersey and here in New York, and there were a couple of, of them like him. So we got together. I think we were a group of four or five. And uh, Luis and I, we were not in the same section, but we were across the hall and, you know, got to know each other, play basketball. He's super competitive and a dirty player. He fouled me all the time. Um, but I, but I uh, put up with that. We got into some fights once in a while, but, you know, we were uh, making Wait, up. who's better? Uh, of course I am. But um, the... Uh, Objectively speaking. The... Uh, the um, and then he brought us to Victor's, uh, actually, and we organized like a Cuban gatherings with industry professionals here in New York. He would come down to Victor's. What's uh, Victor's? Victor's Cafe, which yeah. is a restaurant uh, here in Midtown, a couple of blocks away, which uh, was Luis's family had started, and his grandfather, Victor, was still alive, and ran it. And um, so we would come on the weekends for meals and whatnot and gatherings and uh, so yeah, I spent two years with Louise, graduated in 96, and then we sort of went and, and pursue our own uh, professional uh, careers. HBS was great. Was, uh, as, I say, as I tell people, some people ask me, should I go to business school or not? And I say, hey, listen, depends on your situation. My situation, I had not gone to college in the US, so I did not know a lot mm -hmm. of people. So for me, it was a blend of college and, and business school. I learned a lot, and I got to meet a lot of people. And, and both of these things have been equally important in my professional career um, after. So after HBS, what was the next step? After HBS, I got into private equity. Um, I started, uh, I, I did a uh, stint in between years at HBS down in Brazil in Sao Paulo uh, at a private equity firm. Um, and then I got into private equity. My class, one of my section mates uh, used to work at Chase Capital Partner, and they were looking for a team to start their Latin America group. Yeah. So I joined. I did that for um, two to three years, uh, 97 to 99. Um, great place to learn. They were a very big player back then, and uh, a lot of things were happening there. Actually, in, in fact, the first wave of internet investments was happening back there. And we backed some of the early players in, in LATAM, a company called Star Media that, you know, was a, a portal that ended up not doing well at the end. But companies like Mercado Libre and others who have become very important players and still around. Mm. By the way, Mercado Libre is the Amazon of, of LATAM. So we backed some of the early pioneers uh, and uh, also learned a lot. Uh, Travel quite a bit to uh, 
many of those countries, uh, Mexico, Brazil, Chile, um, so and learn 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 the business. And then, uh, so did a couple years there, and then what was the next chapter? So the next chapter is like uh, Milena and I got engaged in 1999, the summer she started at HBS, and uh, so we got engaged. I moved up with her. I quit my job at Chase. I traveled too much and I wanted to spend time with, with uh, my wife, uh, my fiance then. And um, I got recruited by Atlas Venture for a year, a venture capital firm, uh, which I enjoyed too. Uh, and then after Milena graduated, uh, or in between, I was also uh, recruited by General Atlantic, mm. a um, kind of a big growth global investor. Uh, which was investing in technology and you know growth-oriented businesses. So I moved to Greenwich, or I, I worked out of Greenwich, Connecticut for almost three years, and that was a great experience. Taught me a lot about growth investing, about being a global investor, about you know building organizations. Um, I did that for th three years, and then I left in 2003 um, with the idea of. Um, you know, building or investing or creating a firm that pursued the growth of the Hispanic demographic. Back then, the census had just come out indicating that the Hispanic population had grown from 7.8% to 11.8% during the 90s. Um, today, by the way, it's almost 19 or 20. And, but back then, I said, hey, can we pursue this through a lower middle market private equity strategy? And uh, thought about a few things, ultimately team up with and joined a firm called Palladium, where I spent about uh, 16 years. Well, what does Avance mean? So the word itself means moving forward, uh, but um, in Spanish. So you move forward, and, and we were looking for a word. I mean, by the way, picking a word these days to start a private equity firm is yeah, a major tough. pain in the butt. If you have anything to do with rock, right. river, mountain, Taken. Right, right. <laughs> uh, two parts words, a color, and a this, and a this, and it's all kinds of stuff. So we, we ultimately, uh, you know, we, we, want, we looked at a lot of things, and uh, this word just came up, and it fell right. Um, there, um, there were a few other people with similar words, similar usage of that word, but not no one in private equity that we could tell. So we just went for it, and, um, and it feels right. I mean, for us, it was... Uh, feels right on a couple different levels. Um, you know, emblematic of the kind of work we've done in our careers with entrepreneurs. So team up with them, help them move forward. Emblematic of you know, three fifty-some-year-olds in the middle of their careers and thinking about what they do next, move forward. Um, and uh, it's just emblematic also of a lot of the things that we want to do in our industry. You know, our people culture first, people first culture our the things that we do around diversity or ESG, you know, we don't we don't want to build another private equity firm. We want to build something new and different. We want to help the industry move forward. So for for us, all of that, how do we create? How do we push ourselves and our industry forward? Is you know, we, we love the word. Can you talk a little more about culture? Because I remember you were mentioning that book, uh, Setting the Table. And I downloaded it, it's on my Audible, so I'm going to listen to it. But uh, you're, you were just talking about how, how much it has influenced how your team thinks about, you know, uh, just b building the team, leading the team, managing the team. But just like what are, you know, what are some takeaways for, for people who are, you know, watching this and listening to it on, 
you know, that, that book and how it's influenced you. Yeah, and I mean, uh, the book has been very influential. I mean, you know, so what I would say to people is um, think about what you want to do in your life. And the most important thing is not to succeed, is not to make money, is to bring meaning into your life. You know, when you get to 50, you realize that you don't have another 50 years. You have some dependent, but likely life is finite. So what is it that you want to do when you grow up, quote unquote? So in terms of bringing meaning to the life, you know, we've all been practitioners in private equity for quite a while. And we've seen successful firms. We've seen less successful firms. We've seen how the industry deals with different issues. And one of the things that we were not happy about was as the industry you know, went from a cottage industry to a more institutional industry that we saw some firms struggling with that. And, and I think um, the, the root cause from our perspective is how they treated people uh, at all different levels. Um, and, and I think when, when, when we went back and thought about what industries can we learn from, there were several industries that we've adapted different things from. Technology, we've copied some things. But um, one of the industries that we learn from is here in town in New York and very successful. It's a hospitality business. And one of the entrepreneurs that we respect there the most is Danny Myers and what he's done, uh, revolutionizing that space. And by creating you know, a people-first culture at his establishments, his restaurants. He was- so There's like uh, Union Square Cafe and then uh, Shake Shack. Shake Shack and a few others. And, and um, you know, he's, he's also he's, he's developed a number of other restaurants. But what he did, by the way, is he did away with tips so he started, he raised the salary of everyone to the point where he's very competitive. And he's, through that, he's able to pick the best people. But were you trying to use that to get rid of bonuses? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but what he did is, what he did, his theory is that if you treat people the best and you focus on them, they're going to treat others the best. They're not going to. And, and, uh, and, and his, his, his uh, thinking is that the most important uh, constituency group in a restaurant. It's not the clients. It's not the investors. It's, it's the people who work there. Uh, and again, if they feel great, they're gonna that that people who walk into this place are gonna sense that. They're gonna sense that the place is just working flawlessly. And um, so we said, well, that's really interesting because financial services has a lot of that. You know, a lot of uh, you know, we're well-paid people but not a great culture. You know, anything from feedback to how we manage our time to and so forth. And um, so we, you know, one of the goals of Avance as we went about uh, creating the firm is how do we create a people-first culture. And that book describes the journey of how he thought about changing an industry that treated people very poorly for a long amount of time. So let's do a, a lightning round of questions, <laughs> and uh, first, let's just kind of talk about some, you know, some interesting. What are your top? What are some lessons out there for people who are starting firms, and whether it's in private equity, private credit, investment banks, it doesn't matter. Like, what are some lessons in looking back and, and getting this thing off the ground with your, with the team? Um, so, what I would advise people to do is don't be afraid reach out to as many people as you can 
there's always people out there who are willing to help you. You'll be surprised by how many people uh, are willing to help you. So don't don't get stuck into your I need to be at this level to this level. Don't put don't put artificial barriers on yourself, which is very very common in in people. Um, don't be afraid afraid of re uh, rejection. I mean, if you're afraid of rejection, it's tough to start a new firm. So put yourself out there again and again. Um, you know, realize that you need a few rejections. In fact, you need several of them. You need to craft your message. You need to adapt. And then the last thing is learn. So don't take, the worst thing is to get a rejection without any learning. So, you know, be a little critical yourself. Why did you do, how did you do it? Could you have done better? How do you up your game next time? How do you do it different, shorter, smoother? Um, you know, try to bring your personality into it. Smile. Uh, try to connect with people. You know, at the end of the day, this is in most most businesses are a people business. So, how, when, and how people take your calls or your zooms or whatnot is a is, in my opinion, at least fifty percent. Do you do they like you? Do they want to connect with you? And the other fifty percent is is the substance of what they're selling you. You know, applicable. Do they want to benefit? You know, as a match. But don't forget that connecting with people is a huge part of the of the business. And and then remember, you're building a business. It's not doesn't have to be successful day one. You hopefully building a business for the long term. So approach those relationships and the building of those relationships with that in mind. Uh, when do you like to make decisions? <laughs> Never. Uh, you know, I, uh, I, I joke with my kids, just as you know, that I, I used to uh, have this framework that I wouldn't make decisions after five because I was tired and my kids uh, grew up with that till they overthrew that, that, uh, <laughs> that part of me. And, uh, and then uh, and my wife did too, drove her crazy. But, um, you know, I, it, you know you, I, I wanted to think it through. I'm an engineer, remember? I want to think through everything. <laughs> I want to be, you know, rested, the whole thing. But, but no, seriously, you know, try to make, try to make uh, particularly important decisions where you have all your tool sets ready, which include you being rested, having a clear head, having the energy. Uh, decision making is tiring. That's what mm -hmm. people don't understand. Like the, you know, the, the effort that goes into making a decision if you take it seriously, it's quite energy consuming. So it could be draining. So sometimes, this is why, by the way, I think a lot of people who eat the same thing or exercise the same thing, the reason they do it is because that's the easiest path in life. Just follow what worked and do it again. Like wearing the same shirt. <laughs> I literally have two shirts. I have this and a blue one that I work out in. And I have four of those. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Um, last question. Where is Avance in 10 years? Moving forward. <laughs> All right. <laughs>